Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Griffith, CEO and co-founder of Hone, a live learning platform that's raised over $50 million in funding. Tom, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building today, I'd love to talk about what you've already built. So I'm sure everyone listening will, of course, have heard of your previous company, FanDuel, but let's talk about it. So walk us through the early days of FanDuel and what it was like starting the company and some of those challenges you faced along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So we got started back in 2007. Um, I dropped out of grad school because I really wanted to start companies and have a big impact on the world that way. And we were building a different idea. It was a news prediction market called HubDub that would allow people to make play money predictions on news stories. So, you know, celebrity gossip or politics, um, you know, going into an election year in 08. So it's kind of an interesting free game that we built. And we'd raised a bit of capital out there in Scotland. And that was you know, running out and, you know, our revenue wasn't really materializing. So we recognized that we needed to pivot and do so pretty substantially to you know, save the business. And so what we saw in the data was that, you know, people love to predict on sports and that if we were to monetize predictions around sports, that would be within a fantasy sports framework if it was going to be legal in the U.S., which is 80 percent of our traffic at the time. And so we started experimenting with different daily fantasy sports prediction games, which is a bit of a mouthful and wasn't really a category at the time. There were a few um, bedroom projects, but we were the first venture-funded company to really develop the game format and market it. And so we were able to create a category. And I think FanDuel, um, after the pivot, made more money in its first month than our other company in the first two years. So we're like, okay, this is the direction we want to go. And, and that's how it was uh, born. And just so that we can understand the scale of the company at that time, or at, at the peak, how big did FanDuel get? Yeah. So, I mean, it's continued to grow and you know, it's at its peak at the moment in its latest incarnation of really a sports book and gaming platform that also includes fantasy sports. But where we started uh, was just in terms of team size, you know, five of us founders around a kitchen table in Scotland, knocking around ideas for, you know, what we could do to entertain the the fan base that we built. And throughout my tenure of um, exactly 10 years, um, I left on my anniversary to, to start home. We grew to a peak of 550. So from five to 550 in about six years. Can't give exact revenue numbers, but you know certainly north of a hundred million over that period of time, and you know much much more at this point, given how the industry has exploded post uh, the Supreme Court decision to allow for sports betting at state level. And I think every founder dreams or you know has aspirations to create a new category and and be a company that's you know a market leader like that. But I think there's some downsides that come from it and some challenges that come from it, of course. So can you talk us through some of those challenges that you faced in the early days as you were creating that category? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the lessons that we took from HubDub was don't be too different. Like You can create a new category, but be one step removed from something people know. We were trying to create this like play money prediction market that was also a news site and 
it took me three minutes to explain to anyone what it was. Whereas with FanDuel, yes, it was new and a new category of daily fantasy sports or DFS, but it was only one step removed from traditional fantasy sports that the target market knew about. And you could say, yeah, we're like season-long fantasy, except you know, it happens in a day or a week. And then that was a clear enough bridge for people to understand what the heck we were in the early days. So that that was one lesson. I think you know, another lesson is, of course, it just takes a lot of time and money to create a category. And a lot of people think of you know, FanDuel and uh, DraftKings as overnight success stories, whether that's 2014, 2015. But you know, it's the overnight success story that took eight years to build, right? Because we're trying to refine the product, trying to figure out what are the successful marketing channels, how do we message and explain what we are. So it you know it takes time, takes capital. And then I think in our case as an industry, when we reached escape velocity around that time, 2015, we did attract some media scrutiny and some regulatory scrutiny because of what we were doing with money related to sports. And, you know, we'd had multiple legal opinions of the legality of the game. So it was less of a concern there, more of a kind of a clarifying exercise to pass legislation and regulation at the state level to shore up the legality of the game, which, again, as a when you're pushing boundaries and creating new products and, and new industries, that is often a cycle that companies go through, you know, thinking of places like Airbnb or Uber who've had their own um, regulatory battles because of the innovative approach they bring to the space. Makes a lot of sense. And you were raising, let's see, when did you raise the first round for FanDuel? Was it 2009? Yeah, so it would have been 2008 pre-pivot. And then the first round we raised as FanDuel, I believe was 2011. Wow. So you guys were raising in the uh, or very different times from now, and you were able to raise, uh, I would describe it as FU money. Uh, according to Crunchbase, it was over $400 million. How have you seen the, the venture markets change from you know, how they were back then to how they are today and you know, the current fundraising environment? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been an interesting path and almost, I wouldn't say going full circle. It was certainly more modest in terms of valuations and the various fundraisers at each stage back then. But of course, you know, we've been through a few years of boom times with crazy valuations, crazy revenue multiples. And, you know, the Series C looks like the Series A used to, and the Series A looks like the Series B used to. So things have definitely kind of migrated earlier. But, you know, this year, of course, we're going through a pretty significant reset in terms of valuation, in terms of, you know, the availability of capital or the pace of capital deployment. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't say it's gone all the way back, you know, 14 years, but certainly back to kind of 2019 levels in terms of people's expectations and scrutiny of the business, right? Like I think in the boom times, a lot of diligence can be you know, taking shortcuts. Whereas now we just did a fundraise for Hone over the summer and they really dig into the business and understand all aspects and metrics and people and opportunity versus, you know, the same time last year, when uh, you know a lot of diligence was getting skipped. Makes a lot of sense. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. Is there a specific CEO and team that you've really studied and, and learned the most from? I mean, I respect a lot of entrepreneurs, anyone that's kind of been in the grind, even if it becomes a household name later, there's often a much harder story than people realize to get there. Uh, one of the companies and entrepreneurs that come to mind when I, I think like that is Brian Chesky at Airbnb. Um, they had 
quite a lot of grind in the early days to you know spin up their marketplace and even sold cereal to you know make rent or whatever it was. There's good founding law around that. But I really just look up to Airbnb as an iconic company because of what it has enabled for people, both hosts who can make an income and guests who can travel around the world and stay in unique places. It's an amazing business. And I think you know they've created an incredible culture, brand, and have a tendency to stand up for doing things the right way and are not afraid to admit their mistakes and, and correct them. So I just think it's a really well-run business with a huge positive impact on the world. Nice. I love that. And yeah, I love their origin story. It's almost too perfect. Like the, what was the serial? <laughs> Captain McCain's and Obama O's and they sold like 50K worth to fund Airbnb in the early days, something along those lines, right? Totally. Exactly. Although inside secret, I'm not saying Airbnb did this, but many founding stories kind of get remembered with rose-tinted glasses and a little bit exaggerated. So always take a pinch of salt with those founding stories. Yeah, for sure. I feel like they're crafted by a strategic communications team over you know many brainstorming sessions to figure out the exact pieces. I'm sure exactly. you know, the pieces are always accurate and truthful, but how they're pieced together may uh, may vary a little bit. Exactly. Although, of course, not for Fangio or Home. <laughs> of course. All the other companies. <laughs> <laughs> and what about books? What book has had the greatest impact on you as a founder? And, and this can be a business book, of course, or it can be a personal book. Yeah, I mean, uh, given the nature of what we do at home with leadership and management, I read a lot of leadership books. I think what really got me on the personal development track was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a a massive classic. Uh, So many folks will know it, but just understanding some of the interpersonal principles there uh, really kind of opened my mind to how you can grow in in those dimensions as well as you know more technical dimensions, which were a big feature of my education and, and college years. So really, you know, that that was a watershed moment for me. I would say more recently, um, really enjoy Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin and Amp It Up by Frank Sweetman. Uh, really just how to be thoughtful, but aggressive and move at pace in business. But, you know, in the Extreme Ownership case, really taking responsibility for everything in your life and everything in the business and looking at what you can do to reach new heights rather than blaming other people or taking shortcuts. So there's just a lot of common wisdom, I would say, to a lot of the literature, but those three stand out as having their unique take. Yeah, I just finished Frank Slootman's book, and I I loved it. That guy's a machine. (laughs) He's like a a real operator and a real executor. The takeaway I had from that book was his chapter or the section about the need and the importance of having an enemy. And I think he really hammered that message. And I think that's just a a very good message to have out there, because I think a lot of companies really need that. And they need to understand that there is an enemy there that does exist. Yeah, totally. And I mean, daily fantasy sports is uh, a great example of that. I think we were rivals, should we say, um, FanDuel and DraftKings, and you know, ultimately have a lot of respect for the DraftKings team as, as entrepreneurs and and business people. But you know, when we were in hand to hand combat in those kind of earlier years, then it was it was a real rivalry that that drove the team. So he's exactly right. If you saw the founders from that company now, would you guys handshake, hug, or uh, avoid each other? Well, it's funny because we actually got to know each other quite well when the two companies were meant to be merging, which was kind of an unthinkable act you know, back at the time. This was 2016 after you know we'd been through this challenging regulatory cycle that really kind of put the brakes on the growth in the industry. And so our boards uh, thought that it would be 
sensible and there's a lot of rationale to it that these two arch rivals should actually combine into one company which you could imagine went down like a lead balloon with the with the teams but I actually spent a lot of time with the DraftKings leadership team because we needed to figure out how were we going to put these two companies together which pieces are we going to keep from each one and we were pretty much ready to go until one fateful day when the FTC reviewed the deal from an antitrust perspective and decided to shut it down because it felt like it was highly competitive. Our argument, of course, was that sports and fantasy sports is much bigger than FanDuel and DraftKings, but they narrowly defined the market as DFS. And between the two of us, we had a significant market share. So you know that was a disappointing decision and changed the course of the company's history and, and, and my life, frankly. But yeah, that's how I got to know the DraftKings guys. <laughs> There has to be some form of validation for an entrepreneur to know they made it though, right? If the FTC is striking down your deals, then you're at least on the radar and you're, you're having an impact on society. You're doing something. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Amazing. Well, I think that's plenty of time to talk about what you've previously built. Now let's talk about what you're building today because I know it's super exciting. So tell us about Hone. What's the origin story? And give us just a little bit of more information on what you guys really do. Absolutely. So we're in the education space. We have a novel platform that does live online education for corporations. So we teach Zoom-based classes of 60 to 90 minutes that are super high impact, super interactive with a small group of learners and an executive coach, teaching things like you know how to give feedback, how to delegate well, how to run a one-on-one meeting, as well as diversity, equity, inclusion, principles, and you know, personal productivity. So it's in some ways, you know, best practices that have been around for a while, the contribution that we're making is that we've really up-leveled the uh, user experience of what it means to go through training. I learned at Fangio when I was working with the L&D teams to find this kind of soft skills or people skills training for our employees that things hadn't really moved on since the 1980s, where even today, manager training can look like fly everybody into HQ or some hotel ballroom, sit in the conference room for a couple of days with a flip chart, maybe get a printed handout at the end of the day, and then you go back to your workplace expected to be you know, a great manager uh, based on you know, just a couple of days training. And you know, no disrespect to the content and the experiences that have come before, but you know, in terms of the return on investment, like the level of inconvenience, and actually the lack of follow-up and reinforcement, it's not a great user experience or learner experience or um, ROI for the business, yet it's a $100 billion industry. And so I couldn't get this opportunity out of my mind when I was at FanDuel thinking, okay, we can really go solve a much order of magnitude, better learning experience for people in these mission-critical, kind of life-changing leadership management and inclusion skills. So that's what we did. And it's just been a really fun problem to solve where not only is it software like Fangio was, but you've got real life humans kind of showing up to classes and crying and laughing and arguing and discussing. And um, it really does have a big impact on people. So combining the live kind of human element of interactive teaching and learning with the digital element of being able to scale that and, and measure its impact for companies has been a really great experience and you know, is having a big impact that we're very proud of. And was there a pivot at all in the midst of COVID or was the plan always to do live learning via Zoom like this? Well, we got started in 2018 and I predicted there would be a pandemic in 2020. So we started with the uh, remote (laughs) approach. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm kidding. Yeah, we've always been remote first. 
And so we've been remote first as a company and we've been remote first as a learning experience, but it was just a incredible opportunity for us to meet the moment with a two-year head start on anybody else when COVID did come around and everybody shifted to remote and hybrid work. Uh, I think there's been a, just a real inflection point in work in the industry where people are now comfortable working remotely and, and collaborating on Zoom, which unlocks this big opportunity of being the go-to platform for training in that world. Whereas previously you might have, you know, trading companies occasionally do live online sessions. We're all about that. And our software is purpose-built for that, as is our content. And so it was just a great tailwind for us to grow coming out of 2020 and 2021. And how do you think about market categories? Is live learning your market category or is that a subcategory of corporate training? What are your views there when it comes to categories? Yeah, um, we're definitely in the corporate training category, which I would say is adjacent to some really exciting categories like uh, you know one-to-one uh, coaching that BetterUp does. Our category historically has been a bit old school and stuffy, if I, if I dare say it, in terms of the corporate training names that you know come up time and time again. And it just feels like an incredible opportunity to be able to disrupt that with a more kind of consumer grade experience and, and you know, analytics for the organization. So yeah, I put us in the corporate training, live training space. But again, we're competing with uh, the Courtyard Marriott you know, flip chart experience, uh, but doing it in a completely modern way that, that fits remote and hybrid work. And in your previous company, you were CPO, I believe, right? You were chief product officer? Correct. What's been the biggest difference for you as you've shifted to the CEO role? A couple of things. I mean, I had the benefit of learning shoulder to shoulder with our CEO, Nigel Eccles Fangio, who is a phenomenal role model and mentor. And so was able to take a lot of lessons from him in starting this company. I think the big thing, a couple of big things that I noticed. One is that there's so many more degrees of freedom as a CEO. As a CPO, yes, you're setting product vision and defining what you build in the product, but there's still the CEO who's defining the direction and the corporate strategy and uh, which you know, buyer personas we're going after or you, you're collaborating with marketing and that. As CEO, obviously the buck stops with you and you've got to make all those decisions. Of course, you delegate certain things down, but for the difficult ones, you know, you've got to make the call. And actually... There's no right answer. You just need to base those decisions on the vision of the kind of company you want to create, on the values that you have as a leader and as a company, on the data and the information that you have to hand, and then go with it. And then not only go with it yourself if you're only half sure, but actually convince everybody else that this is the direction you've got to go, knowing it could be wrong. But there's also 10 other options that you could have chosen that could be wrong and this is the right way. So that you know, felt like sailing out into the open ocean, right? With You could go any degree on the compass. And so that, that was a big mindset shift. I think the other learning is just the degree to which you need to be the face of the company. And to be able to do that, having an ability to tell stories or inspire people or fundraise or recruit top executives, a lot of the, the skills to do all of those things are, are the same. But it starts with having a high internal conviction over what you're doing. So I would say to anyone that's founding a company as a founder CEO, it's just like, don't settle for something that you're kind of half interested in and think could be a good business opportunity, because there's really a high bar for conviction, um, which then leads to all of the other practices of being able to tell a compelling story and bring people in. And especially in this market where fundraising is very difficult compared with even 12 months ago, you really need to have that 
level of belief and conviction, and then the ability to tell great stories externally, uh, as well as internally as I had previously. Makes a lot of sense. And if we're looking at adoption and traction so far, are there any numbers or metrics that you can share just so we can better understand what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, as we raise a round of funding over the summer, you know, we've grown 10x over the prior 12 months because of this tailwind of companies getting comfortable with the idea of remote and hybrid work and shifting to us because, you know, we're really the the best positioned solution. So, you know, just a, a high relative growth rate that's been really exciting. You know, we just crossed 100 employees last week, thanks to, you know, continued growth and investment with our Series B. And it's just exciting to be maturing the company to get that next 10x growth over the coming years and, and upwards from there. And what are you doing to break through the noise and stand out? Because I see in you know TechCrunch every couple of weeks, there's a new corporate training platform that's raising some funding. What have you done to really rise above that noise and capture their attention? I think it's a few things. I think that the combination of live teaching and an enterprise-grade platform that helps companies deploy and measure it is actually unique. And I think perhaps if you're coming to the space, maybe as a, a you know, generalist investor or an observer, a lot of the solutions can look similar. Whereas when we speak to customers, they see us as very different and you know, the distinction is clear. And so you know, we use those customer testimonials, those customer viewpoints, customer references to show that this really is different. And this is like the modern version of the classroom training as opposed to you know, a video library or a one-on-one coaching platform. And that, that helps us to cut through. So really just like leveraging customer stories and continually reinforcing how we're fundamentally different. And in terms of uh, fun, on a level of one to 10, how does live learning compare to what you're doing at FanDuel in the you know, consumer-focused markets and fantasy sports? <laughs> well, I mean, all those free Super Bowl tickets and NBA Finals tickets just got really boring over time. <laughs> all the travel to the different cities. Now, I mean, FanDuel was a tremendously fun company to build. Uh, I think it's a great word for it. I would say for Hone, um, it's a higher purpose for me. It's much more fulfilling. Uh, we have a lot of fun along the way, but you know, it, it definitely feels like this is what I want to spend my life working on and reimagining how learning happens in terms of people skills and at work. And so it's kind of a different dimension or different level for me here at home. And what would you say excites you the most every day? And you know, what do you wake up for every day with this company? Yeah, I think it's important for anyone building anything to stay close to the impact you're having on the customer. It's easy to look at metrics or think about plans or hiring or personnel issues that you have to deal with every day. But uh, whenever I take one of our classes, it's just so transformational that it reminds me of this impact that we're having. You know, we're running hundreds of classes every week right now, which is, is super exciting. And the feedback we get, we actually pump into a Slack channel. So you can, if you ever need a, a feel good five minutes, you can hop into the feedback channel and just see people saying, wow, you know, this is really, because we take the feedback, you know, a month later after the class and they say, wow, this has really changed my dynamic with my team. I feel like you know, they're stepping up more because I'm listening better and delegating better. But also, you know, it's, it's helped with my communication with my spouse because being a great communicator or maybe conflict resolution is a useful skill as well at home. So I love seeing the kind of the whole person impact that we're having. Amazing. And if we zoom out into the future, let's say five years, what's the five-year vision for Hone? What's it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, the dream would be that we become the go-to platform for all live corporate learning. So anything that used to be taught in a classroom 
whether that's management skills as we do today, DEI skills as we do today, or in future, potentially, you know, more specialized skills like sales, leadership or excellence, marketing, product management, and so on. You know, we want to expand the content on the platform to deliver that value more broadly to companies. I think they like that idea because they want a simpler kind of aggregated experience. It's just that no one's done that for live training yet. And so I would love us to be you know, the number one in the category and the thing that everybody thinks of uh, when they think live training. Amazing. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? They can follow me on LinkedIn, Tom Griffiths and Hone, or they can follow me on Twitter at Tom Griffiths. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share your vision. This is all super exciting and we look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks, Brett. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate having me. Thank you.